And now let's see what the God we've been worshipping has to say to us uh, through this ancient prophecy of Ezekiel. We're turning to Ezekiel 12. I'm going to read just a couple of verses from that. Uh, first of the, cha- the beginning of the chapter, then a little more, and into chapter 13. But I'll, I'll, I'll keep announcing where I am. Chapter 12, then, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. This keeps recurring. They have eyes to see, but do not see, and ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious people. Verse 21. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, what is this proverb you have in the land of Israel? The days go by and every vision comes to nothing. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am going to put an end to this proverb. They will no longer quote it in Israel. Say to them, the days are near when every vision will be fulfilled. For there will be no more false visions or flattering divinations among the people of Israel. But I, the Lord, will speak what I will, and it shall be fulfilled without delay, for in your days, you rebellious house, I will fulfill whatever I say, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, the house of Israel is saying the vision he sees is for many years from now, and he prophesies about the distant future. Therefore say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, none of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever I say will be fulfilled, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are now prophesying. Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets, Israel, are like jackals among ruins. You have not gone up to the breaches in the wall to repair it for the house of Israel so that it will stand firm in the battle on the day of the Lord. Their visions are false and their divinations are a lie. Even though the Lord has not sent them, they say the Lord declares and expect him to fulfill their words. Have you not seen false visions and uttered lying divinations when you say the Lord declares, though I have not spoken? Amen. We'll just leave it there and let's see what... God can say to us tonight on the 2nd of March 2008 from this passage here. I suggest to you that we're facing two particular dangers uh, when we turn to Ezekiel. We, We see there reflected two dangers that were relevant then. And I want to suggest to you that these are dangers that are just as relevant today as we look at this prophecy. Dangers that, you know, are we hearing what God is saying? 
And if so, are we taking him seriously? Now, of course, I'm not just thinking of the four weeks that I'm here. I'm thinking generally about what is saying God is saying to you through the ministry that has taken place in this pulpit, what he's doing in your Bible reading, what he's doing through circumstances. There are so many ways we, we will see where God is speaking to us. Are we hearing what he's saying? And are we taking seriously what he's saying? And then, secondly... Is there not the danger that we distort what he is saying in order to make it more palatable, more comfortable? God may have spoken to you, to me, through circumstances, through the Bible, from the pulpit, through a conversation with a friend, something you read that someone else has written, a testimony you've heard. The Holy Spirit may simply be moving in on your mind, his spirit witnessing with your spirit uh, and, and touching your hearts and prompting thoughts. Maybe even in a dream, and I, I, I don't say that casually, talking to those who are working particularly among Islamic people, there is this uh, indication that so many folk uh, where the gospel can't get to them by other mechanisms, God is speaking in, in dreams. What has God been saying to you recently? What has God been saying to you recently? Now, I suspect that there may be some here this evening, and you're somewhat bemused even by that question. You know, it's okay uh, in a rhetorical form from the pulpit, uh, but, you know, we can hide in anonymity. I'm not going to be pointing a finger and asking the question, you know, Gordon, what does God say? But so there's a certain anonymity about the situation we, we have here. Uh, but maybe you're saying, you know, God never says anything to me. At least nothing that would stand up in court. Nothing that I can be certain, certain of. Nothing beyond all reasonable doubt. Now, I, I'll confess, if I may, that I... I have some sympathy for, for that. I'm instantly suspicious of, of, of those who, without hesitation or qualification, will say, you know, lace their conversations with comments such as, the Lord told me this, or the Lord told me that, or the Lord said do this or do that. I mean, how, how do we know it was the Lord and not some wee notion that we had that we sort of hang on that sort of phrase? I want God to preserve me from cynicism and uh, as a Christian I want to be positive and I want to encourage an openness to God's voice. But I am certain of this, that God is speaking to us. God is speaking to me. And the real question is, are we listening? I want you to be sure of this. Uh, you know, the prophecy of Ezekiel keeps driving us back to this truth that God was speaking to the Jewish people, whether in exile or back in Jerusalem, God was speaking even in Babylon, but they had stopped listening. And therefore that danger is there. And, and I'm confident from my understanding of God and the way he works and this word that God is speaking. But there is this issue that comes out here in this prophecy, they have eyes to see, says God through Ezekiel, but they don't see. They have ears to hear, but they don't hear. These exiles, you'll know from what we've been talking about in the last few weeks and from your own understanding of Scripture, these exiles were part of a staged evacuation 
uh, of Jerusalem and Judah, they, they, uh, but they refused to believe that their humiliation uh, and their, uh, what was happening to them, they refused to believe that it was going to last. The, you know, Jerusalem was still standing, the, the temple was still there, there was still a king on the throne, and, and somehow they did not really believe that this was any lasting thing. In spite of the fact that God had sent his prophet Ezekiel to dramatically declare that for this generation God's favor had been withdrawn. This didn't really get through. His glory had departed. Babylon had been raised up by God as his instrument of judgment and the exiles in Tel Abib refused to accept it. They were persisting in their unbelief. Their eyes had seen, they had eyes to see, but they didn't see. They had ears to hear, but they didn't hear. Now, I want to press this this morning because it's not just a theme in the Old Testament. Here is something again which the Lord Jesus Christ pressed upon his disciples. Mark 18, Mark 8, rather, verse 18. Do you have eyes but fail to see, he said? Do you have ears but fail to hear? You see, if it was only a question that required enlightened understanding, then perhaps the problem could be solved by, uh, you know, improved presentation. Maybe myself or those who stand in this pulpit should go for better illustrations or a greater attempt at clarity of language. Uh, we, we must do all and we are, we're all in our power in order to make the message clear. That, that's true. We must present it in a contemporary and a relevant manner. All that is necessary. We must help people in every way we can in order to understand. Ezekiel portrayed with dramatic effect uh, the, the, the messages that God had given him. But it's not enough. It's not enough. This is why it's so important that we pray for our Sunday school teachers, for those who stand here, for those who are seeking to witness, for our own attempts at personal witnessing. It's not enough to have a brilliant, lucid presentation of the truth, important though that is, from this word we discover that the battle is not only intellectual, but spiritual. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. This is why prayer is so vital. Satan specializes in deception, in distortion, in distraction, in, in, in bringing about spiritual Blindness, And we must accompany our presentation of the truth, albeit contemporary and as thorough as we can with prayer, for spiritual cataracts to be removed and for God to uh, take this light of the gospel and penetrate into the darkness of our own souls and the souls of the men and women we're seeking to reach. But this blindness can take another insidious form. In the lives of Christians, it was foremost in the mind of Jesus when he used those words that I've just referred to. Do you have eyes to see, he said to the disciples. Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? And the, 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 the situation that, that was here, Jesus called it the leaven of the Pharisees. The yeast of the Pharisees in the NIV. And its effect is insidious, and it can be described rather like this. Where God proves himself to us 
in some set of circumstances. He answers prayers. And oh, we're so thrilled about that. He, he provides for a particular need in a situation that we've faced. He speaks to us reassuringly from his word in a way that really resonates with our, our soul. He takes us through a crisis and we pray for his help and he comes along graciously alongside us and takes us through that, that crisis. But then we hit another set of circumstances, maybe similar to the first. And we forget all about the previous blessings and the previous reassurances and the previous evidence of God's presence and doubts reemerge and cynicism comes in and previous experiences begin to be regarded with some suspicion. It's the leaven of the Pharisees. That's what this is. You know, the disciples went to pieces on this very issue. And, and, and Jesus, he, he, he described it to, it, it comes in a wonderful dramatic story. Remember how he had fed 5,000 plus on one occasion. And the disciples were there witnessing it. I just pick up this attempt dramatically to portray it in a painting. But 5,000 plus on one occasion, 4,000 plus on another occasion, and within a day or two, the Lord Jesus Christ is alone with his disciples and they are upset. They really are. They're disturbed. Why? And the story is there. They had forgotten to buy bread. They'd forgotten to buy bread. And Jesus says, be careful. And he says it to me because I'm so guilty of this. Be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees. And he puts them over it. He says, remember, five loaves and a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fishes. And 500 are fed and 12 baskets are lifted. Do you remember the 4,000? He said, 4,000 are fed from four loaves and seven basketfuls of, of, uh, of leavings are collected. How many of us are there? Thirteen. What's your problem? The leaven of the Pharisees, where we forget the blessing. And in Ezekiel's day, there were those in Israel who had become so cynical. The days, the days go by, and every vision comes to nothing. The cynicism, that Old Testament evidence of the leaven of the Pharisees. And God resents that attitude. He resents it in us. It's the ethos of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the attitude of those who mock Noah. It, it's the lame excuse for the leaven of the Pharisees. I believe that God has a prophetic word for us this evening. As he comes and says, the days are near when every vision will be fulfilled. Pick up this word. Not a promise that's here is going to be left unfulfilled. And God is not slow concerning his promises. The, the problem is that we are rather slow to stand upon them with confidence. To launch out on them. To live by them. And, and as a result, the result can be disastrous as we talked about it this morning. The glory departing. And, and we're abandoned to the shallows and we go into the shadowlands. What is God saying to us? Are we listening? Are we listening as individuals, as a church, as families, as a community? 
You can be sure he's speaking. The question is, am I listening? And the other danger that we face that was highlighted for me in Ezekiel 13 is the danger of hearing what we want to hear. We're guilty of that. I am guilty of that. Danger of distorting the truth uh, until it fits in with our wishes or, or, or seeking around for advice and guidance until we get the advice we want. I used to find that in pastoral work. And, I, you know, I'm sure I was guilty of it. But, you know, folk would come to me and put a particular issue before me and ask me, what do you think? And then I would discover they'd been to this one, they'd been to that one. And really, you know, there, there was this danger that we go around looking for the advice we want to hear. We want to run with the hare and chase with the hounds, as the old saying goes. Christ and our independence to do what we want to do. Eternal life, yes. Oh, I want that. But not with too much interference with how I live this life. And Jesus says it can't be done. It just cannot be done. That's not the way it is. This was a prevailing sin in Ezekiel's day. And I suggest it's still with us. Just like today, people want to hear what suits them, and there will always be those who will pander to this desire, false prophets and false prophecy. You remember King Ahab? And he's a classic example of this. The one-time king of Israel in Samaria, he typifies this crazy attitude. He was visited on one occasion, you remember, by King Jehoshaphat, and the king of Judah. And Jehoshaphat said, is there a prophet of the Lord here of whom we can inquire? Oh, yes, said Ahab, there is. But I hate him. I hate him because he never says anything good about me. You know, that, that, that silly meant Ahab preferred a pleasant lie to the, the truth. And although this is a ludicrous thing, it's widespread. Do you remember promise boxes? Now, you know, you'd have to be sort of over 50 or so to remember promise boxes. But, you know, I, I can remember a, a, as a young fellow, and, and I would take out a promise, oh, I don't like that one. And, you know, you would look around, you got one you really liked. You know, it, it's Ahab. We're, we're playing the same old trick. We're doing the same. Thank God he has often wonderful things to say to us. But there are times when out of his great love, and I realize this theme keeps coming back, out of his great love, he has stern things to say. Things that we don't particularly want to hear. And the message of this book in its entirety, and of the prophecy of Ezekiel in particular, it's a bitter, sweet message. And we're all too inclined to focus on the, the sweet and push the bitter into the background. There are many great truths that are like honey to our lips. But what about the reality of judgment and eternal loss? What about the requirement on me and on all who know and love the Lord Jesus to take up our cross and deny ourselves? Don't like the sound of that. What about a world that is at enmity with God and is under a curse? Now, the false prophet will tend to filter out these things, and in Ezekiel's days, day, there were false prophets who prophesied out of their own imagining. You can read all about it in Ezekiel 13 there. And imagination is a wonderful thing. 
It really is. I mean, God has given us this incredible capacity to conceptualize, to reason, to have mental pictures, to, to conceive thoughts in our minds and build pictures from those thoughts. And as a result, great strides have been made. And many of you know more. You've been down avenues of research and study in this church that I've never been down. Great strides have been taken in science and in philosophy and in art. There, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with this wonderful gift of imagination. But there is a problem. And the problem is that I'm a fallen creature. We are fallen creatures. And very often our imaginings are debased. Normally they are at least flawed. And, and we must be extremely careful to, when we claim that we have the mind of God on any issue. Never be afraid to put checks and balances in when you're, you're seeking the mind of God on an issue. As long as your objective is to confirm that this is God speaking. That's your objective. Not to delay, not to avoid. But I really want to know, Lord, I want your, your signature on this. I want to be sure. God's strong objection to the prophets in Ezekiel's day was that they followed their own spirit. Sometimes the false prophet is not, is not obvious. It's, it's not the obvious declared enemy of the truth that he is. Sometimes he or she is simply a person who is, is dominated by their own desires, which are not always bad. But then representing those desires as the opinion of God, as the mind of God. We have a great need for discernment. A great need for discernment. If any man lacks wisdom, let, he ask, let him ask of God. Discernment to recognize the difference between my personal human views and my aspirations. Expressed maybe even with dogmatic enthusiasm. But to know God's mind requires not just concentration and the power of conceptualing a conceptual thought but it needs the spirit of the living God we need God to come pray for God to come and help you if you when we come together even as a church when we're coming together in Bible study when we're in conversational mode let's be praying for that collective help to discern the mind of God as we discuss things and as issues come up in church. Ezekiel gives two word pictures of those, and he gives this in chapter 13, of those who mess around with the truth, who, who are quick to substitute their own opinions for God's. And this is how he portrays them. On the one hand as a jerry builder and also as a hitman. Look at Ezekiel 13.10. Because they lead my people astray, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash, therefore tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. There's the jerry builder. And Ezekiel 13, 19, by lying to my people who listen to lies, you have killed those who should not have died. The jerry builder and the hitman. And Ezekiel stood out like a lighthouse among the prophets of his day. 
Remembering, you remember the terms of his call that we looked at a few weeks ago? You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or they fail to listen. And Paul, he somehow rephrases this in his inspired instructions to young Timothy. And we find his words in 2 Timothy 4, 2-4. I give you this charge, he says. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. God forbid that that should ever be be said of us, and yet the danger is there. The danger is there, and that's why the warning has been preserved by listening to lies and believing what we want to believe. Israel fell into this trap, and they were reduced to refugee status and subservient to Babylon. You see, listening to God, Confirming that we're hearing his voice above all the other noise that's around us and all the other voices that are seeking to penetrate. Steeping ourselves in this word in order to recognize his voice. Taking time in the quiet to to ponder and, and to listen and to allow the Spirit of God to witness with our spirit. Uh, practicing the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit taking time to to talk with him singing his praises standing up for him trying to please him believing what he says remember that God involves us in this exercise he's not going to write this in the sky the way in which he is ordained is that he somehow involves us in the fulfilling of his promises and, and this is a mystery that the Bible illustrates from time to time. You, you'll recall how you know, Paul was given a promise on his way as a prisoner to Rome. And the promise was that no one is going to be lost in this voyage, Paul. He's heard from God. But, but when, the, when the storm came, Paul didn't just sit back and, and, and assume, well, God has said no one's going to be lost. It's not the way God asks us to function when we're listening to his voice. Paul didn't just sit back. He warned the centurion that everybody had to stay on the ship. He got everybody to work tirelessly during that awful storm. God ordains the ends and the means. Are we listening? Are we cooperating with him? Are we working with him? In first, we were just talking this morning, some of us, about this promise in, the, in another context. But in 1 Kings 18, Elijah had been promised by God that the drought was going to end after three and a half years. But, but did, did Elijah just sit back and, and, and wait for God to fulfill his promise? God had spoken to him. And he believed he had heard God. But now what does he do? He goes to the top of Carmel and he begins to pray, Oh God, I believe I've heard you. Now deliver on your promise. And seven times, you'll remember, he prays up there. And in James, it's taken as as an illustration of the prayer of faith. God has spoken. 
But was Elijah listening? Oh yes, he was listening. And now he goes and he prays to God, Lord, deliver on your promise. And he keeps sending a servant. Do you remember that wonderful dramatic story? He keeps sending a servant, go and have a look and see if God's answering. And he goes and looks seven times. He can back nothing yet. And eventually he goes, yes. And you can almost imagine him like an artist. He put his hand up and, yes, he said, there's a cloud about the size of a man's hand. And that was the cue for Elijah to begin to run for Jezreel. And the sky grew black and the rains came. His promises are sure, but are we listening? And in order to claim those promises and to rest upon them, you know, the the, the battle is the Lord's, but we've got to cooperate. We've got to be joining with Him. We've got to be practicing the ability to discern the voice of God among other voices. And the battle is His. I just this afternoon was praying about this before I came out and there's an illustration that I I want to conclude with Um, I'm not very widely travelled in the United States in the last few years I've been involved in some work with a university in Arkansas but it has given me the chance each year when we're there to just go and see some other places and being a bit of an old romantic and fond of westerns I wanted to see the Alamo so we headed down to San Antonio, or San Antone, as the Texans say, to see this site that has such historic significance. Now, for those of you who have watched the film and been there, forgive me, but the story is, is a very simple one and very dramatic, and never make fun of it in Texas. It's a serious matter there. But General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the Mexican Uh, military dictator had his sights on the southern part of the United States particularly what is now New Mexico and Texas and he came across the border and eventually surrounded the mission station at the Alamo on the 23rd of February 1836 there were 200 defenders inside and there were literally thousands of Mexican soldiers surrounding the Alamo. There were, of course, men there that now have gone into into American history as great characters like David Crockett and also Jim Bowie and so on. But the, the, the fact is that 200 were there and the situation was hopeless and there was going to be no hope of any help. Sam Houston, General Houston, was not going to make it to the Alamo. And Colonel William Travis was in charge of the Alamo and on the night before the final assault, you will recall, he gave permission for anyone, because the clearance had been given that the women and children could leave, and anyone else who was, you know, felt they couldn't cope with it, if they came across this line, they would be allowed to leave the camp. And only one step forward And the rest of those who were in the Alamo, 199 men, stayed on. And there was that legendary battle that took place on March the 6th, 1836, 13 days siege, when every one of them was slain at the time. And it became just a legendary example of those who had given all for the country. Now, there's a postscript to the Alamo. 
And I can remember listening to the story and the tears were coming. I mean, I was deeply moved by this and standing there in the old mission and being able to see here's where this happened and here's where Bowie died and here's where Crockett died and so on. It was quite a moving situation. But there is a true and well-documented sequel. Because General Sam Houston, the general after whom the city of Houston in Texas is called, he, some time later, in fact on April the 21st, same year, he faced the Mexican general and the Mexican army at the Battle of San Jacinto. And he announced to his troops, or he faced his troops with this particular call to arms. Victory is certain, he said. Fear God alone and remember the Alamo. And, and, and with that, the troops went to battle and in fact Santa Ana was defeated at San Jacinto. But you know, I, I, I remember standing there and I was deeply moved by the story and by the fact that I was on the site of where it all happened. But something inside me made me ashamed of my lack of similar fervor for the things of God. And I say to you tonight before we sing our closing hymn, God is speaking to you. We were reminded earlier as Sarah gave us these wonderful items of praise and these wonderful visions of the greatness of our God and that great sacrifice on the cross that we remembered a little earlier. God is speaking, even tonight in a variety of ways, God is speaking to us. And I ask that we go out tonight with a slight modification to General Sam Houston's thoughts. Victory is certain. Has that really grasped us? We have the final chapter. Victory is certain. Fear God alone. And remember Calvary. Keep it before us. You know, if, if there's one thing that I want to generate in the little time I've got here, it is how we need to develop a new sense of, of, of enthusiasm and excitement about the message we have. Victory is certain. Fear God alone and remember Calvary. And the battle is his. And he is speaking to us, but he's saying, you've got to listen, Hatton. And I am giving promises, but you've got to take those checks, those promises, and you've got to present them at the bank of faith. And the battle is mine, but I want you to join with me in this battle. And you know, we can do exploits for our God. In heavenly armor, we'll enter the land. The battle belongs to the Lord. No weapon that's fashioned against us will stand. The battle belongs to the Lord. Do we believe it? Are we convinced about it? Because if we're not, we're going to convince no one else. Just as Alma McAllister said to me once, and I quoted it some recently, hadn't she said? Never tell anyone that God loves them unless you're prepared to love them for him. Good advice. And people are looking into our faces when we're speaking of the Lord Jesus, and they're looking at our priorities and our standards and the way in which we live, and they're looking to see, do you really mean this? Men, women, young people, the battle belongs to the Lord. Victory is certain. Fear God only. And remember 
Calvary. Let's just bow in prayer and then stand and sing that song together. And the musicians and the singers could just come up and join us now quietly, please. Father, enthusiasm from the pulpit is not enough. And I know that even my enthusiasm that I feel here can wane on a Monday morning and when circumstances are adverse. We need the help of your Holy Spirit, Lord. But we want to be real. We want people who look on to see in our lives and in our sense of values the fact that we really do believe what we testify about. What we say has substance. So to this end, do help us, Lord. Help us to be convincing. Help us to listen to you. Not to distort what you're saying. And help us, Lord, to engage with you in bringing about the fulfillment of your promises as you involve us in your work. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In heavenly armor. You know, I, I, I got into some trouble in Ballonhinch uh, because at times I, I, I thought the singing wasn't adequately responsive and I had a tambourine in the pulpit and I nearly brought it tonight but I thought, you know, Windsor mightn't cope with a tambourine. I don't know. I'm told there are drums up there. Somewhere. Well, okay, in heavenly armor we'll enter the land. Stand with me and sing this, as I said this morning, with attitude. Okay. <laughs>